Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week's episode is brought to you by Credit Karma. So when's the last time you checked your credit scores? Because your scores may change more often than you think, and you should know what they are now and not from a year ago. Credit Karma is here to help out. The best thing? Credit Karma is always free, and there's no catch. No credit card needed. Go to creditkarma.com or download the Credit Karma app now. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Demp here. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are. Listen, first I want to say I hope you're having a terrific 2018. I hope your year's off to a great start. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to say if you haven't listened to our last episode, be sure to go do that. The beginning of the year is such a great time to start something new, and I think Our last episode will prompt you to try out some new things, potentially cold showers, and see the benefits. And the only reason I'm saying that is because it's been over a month now since I interviewed Scott Carney. I have added the cold shower finish to the end of all of my showers, and I have to say, I now look forward to freezing cold water at the end of my shower. I know it's insane but it feels incredible. So go listen to that. You'll know what I'm talking about and give it a shot. On to this week. I'm excited to bring this episode to you because I have to admit, history was one of those subjects in school that I just never really got into. 
And now I appreciate it so much greater. So when I get an incredible historian and academic on this show that can really bring history to life and then show me how it can help us all in the present is something I relish. This week on the show, we interview Harvard Business School historian Nancy Kane. Nancy is the author of the new best-selling book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Now, I know leadership is a hot topic, but it's actually one that I've been trying to steer away from a little bit, just given the saturation. However, this book and Nancy's message is so unique and so valuable, I had to talk to her. What Nancy did is she utilized her skills as a world-renowned historian to look at some of the finest leaders of all time, evaluate the crisis and the turbulence that they went through, and uncover what it was that made them great in the most difficult circumstances. These five leaders include polar explorer Ernest Shackleton, President Abraham Lincoln, legendary abolitionist Frederick Douglass, Nazi-resisting clergyman Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and environmental crusader Rachel Carson. So as always in this episode, we're going to get that Notes version of what she uncovered as she studied the lives of these five incredible leaders. And I truly believe that these lessons can be applied instantly in all of our lives today to be more resilient, to push through challenges, and to, of course, come out on the other side a more well-rounded, impactful, empathetic, and respected leader. We also talk a little bit about what it is to be a historian, how that happens, and also, again, one of those themes I always like to bring in, what is it like to follow that passion you have, whether it be historian, athlete, author, and to make up your mind that you're just going to go for it. So something I really wanted to get Nancy's take on. Before I turn it over to the interview, I have one, only one, thing to mention. We are opening this up to our listeners. We want to talk to you. We want to hear from you. We want to learn how we can provide more value to you. So if you really enjoy the show and you want to help us make it better, I want to get on the phone or on Skype or even just on email with you. Please reach out to us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and help us make this a more valuable experience for you everyone else, and let's see what this can become. So again, email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let's get on with it and learn how to lead through turbulent times and how to grow through crises as we talk to Nancy Kane about her new book, Forged in Crisis. Enjoy. All right. Well, Nancy, first, I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy marketing schedule to be on the show. It's my my sincere pleasure, Chris. You are first and foremost, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a- an academic. So how do you feel about the whole write a book, market it, kind of wearing all these hats? Well, I'm a historian and we're not you know, we don't get PhDs in marketing, but I have I grew up I my my second job almost you know, immediately out of finishing my doctorate was at the Harvard Business School, the, you know, an institution of, you know, consistent pragmatism and organizational capability. So I cut my teeth in some sense as I grew into my own professional 
you know, muscles and sense of proportion. I grew up learning about the importance of communicating worthy missions and worthy messages. And so this piece of the book authorship process, you know, was in some very real sense completely expected and, you know, and, and if not welcomed, assumed to be an important part of the responsibility I bear in trying to bring the book into the world. So mm. I'm not always, you know, skipping right along the cobblestones of, <laughs> of travel for a book tour or jumping up and down about the possibilities of re- relaying my message, you know, for the sixth time on a given day. But I believe in what these these five people whose stories are told here have to offer us mm-hmm. all kinds of people at this moment and, you know, across a longer time span. And so that part of how do I bring my child into the world in a, an effective, you know, and, and courageous way is, is something that I feel that I, ha- that I have to do and I want to do from that, from that place. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you kind of mentioned all of that. There's so many areas I want to cover, but the first one, just to let even the listeners know, I was so pleasantly surprised. Here's what your book was to me. Your book to me was the reason every history professor told me I should pay attention in class. And I still didn't, but I wish I would have, you know, they say, right. History. Part of it is so that we don't make the same mistakes. And you really, you, you highlight, like we deal with crises often as a species And there have been people who have dealt with it the right way and come out on the other end. Here's their lessons. Yeah, that's well. Well, again, let's go back to the the crucible in which the book was born. And that is, you know, and, and, and my own the greenhouse that helped, you know, shape me as a historian. And that was being at a school where you're teaching, you know, students who are poised for action and you're teaching executives who live completely in the world of action. So, so Chris, the folks that, that go to Harvard business school, don't go there to learn history. Right. right? right. Great but point. They, <laughs> just to, let's go back to your, your, the, your comment at the top of the question. They understand as Mark Twain once said that history doesn't repeat itself precisely, but sometimes it does rhyme. So they are interested in the rhymes of history. So my challenge has always been, how do I reconstruct the historical truth, which is a painstaking, in many, many ways, boring and arduous process, um, and at the same time, make what I discover, the, the truth of the past, interesting and vibrant to people you know, ready to jump out of their seats and do something. And, and that is something, I think that is the great gift of history I've come to to, to realize, you know, what do we learn from the past? What do we learn from the struggles and the triumphs of other people at other moments that we can use today because their moment has these similarities or their journey has these, you know, rhymes with our own journeys and our own moment. And so that's a huge gas tank, you know, maybe the most important gas tank that fuels this book because it's the gas tank that fuels me and all the work I've done in my 30s, 40s, and now into my 50s. So um, so I, I want people to grab at those lessons. I want people to grab at those similarities. I want people from teenagers to, you know, senators and everybody in between say, hmm, boy, here's how Ernest Shackleton, the Antarctic explorer, matters to me. Or, oh, I wonder what Rachel Carson, the environmental 
activist and crusader would have done in this moment. And, and I, I found these people to speak to my own life that way in so many ways. Mm. It would be my, it's my privilege to help others open that door if they can find these stories compelling and useful. That last sentence makes a lot of sense because I mean, now as I get more curious, it's much more important. But when I was in college, I remember just thinking, how do I get through this class? I really do. And what was lost on me and what you mentioned there is how do you make it pertinent as a professor? I mean, yes, you're a historian, but teaching at Harvard, it's your job to take this critical aspect of being human and learning and and all this and delivering it in a way that makes it relevant, interesting, and shows the use of it. But for me, that's hard as it relates to history, as opposed to math, science, things you can utilize right now. You know, maybe it is, but, but it's, but for those of us that, you know, choose and we're historians that choose to bring history to life in a very practicable way, as you and I are talking about, um, for, and we're, we're a small handful. Most historians in traditional history departments, in high schools, in colleges, in other places of learning, right, are studying the past on its own terms for its own, you know, for its own reasons. Um, and, and then you have a really big, if you will, gauntlet or glove on the ground to pick up, which is how do you make that sing to people, especially in an age where our attention spans are shrinking and, you know, we just want to get on our phone as soon as we can and see what's happening there. Um, but but for a small handful of us who, you know, including writers who write biographies in a way that helps people make the stories useful today, right, for those of us that do this, it's incredibly satisfying work. It's 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 not that hard in that if you're paying attention to both the past and the present, I'm always toggling back and forth every single day. You know, I was, woke up this morning thinking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this the fourth story in this book, this the Nazi resistor, this clergyman who really, you know, got more and more involved in trying to resist Nazi evil throughout his life in the 1930s and early 40s. And, you know, I woke up that and, and, and then, I, you know, I, I got on the New York Times website and I started thinking about what's happening today. That's my life. I move almost seamlessly between the past and the present. And when you live like that, it's 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 a joy to 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 bring what you see as viable, truthful rhymes of the past and other people in the past to to the present. And so I. I do this with pep in my step. Yeah, yeah. You might be the first historian we've ever had on, which is really cool. And that means that's a blind spot of mine. So for those of us that don't you know, know, would you tell us what a historian is and what motivated you to be one? A historian is a person who commits their time and energy to uncovering the puzzle of the past, right? To piecing together all those little bits that comprise a certain person's life, a particular moment in history, right? The second chapter in the books of Abraham Lincoln. So I not only spent, I spent years, right? Reconstructing his journey from the inside out, because as you know, this book is the ex- is about the emotional experience of these leaders. That's the the foundation of the stories. But also, I was reconstructing, you know, in 
edible fashion, right, the, the larger stage of the, of the runway to the Civil War and then the Civil War itself. So it's someone who commits to reconstructing, um, putting together the pieces of the puzzle of a particular moment or a particular person's life in, in, in light of a series of important questions. Historians don't just out, set out to say, well, I'm going to describe the Renaissance or I'm going to describe, you know, the early 1960s in America. They set out to answer a series of questions about a particular moment. Mm. And then they use, with painstaking care, they use all, they assemble the historical sources. The, the pieces of the puzzle are diaries, you know, um, uh, archives full of letters, um, government memorandum, if you're trying to understand, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis, another fascinating, relevant moment in history to our own turbulent time. Um, you know, they, they are working with the, the, the residue and the breadcrumbs of all kinds of documents and other media in modern times. You know, that can be television, it can be a, m newspaper clippings, it can be magazine articles. They're using all the residue of the past, the, the evidence left by people um, and institutions from the past to try and piece together that puzzle in a way that has the integrity of 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 the of what really happened what's the integrity of what really happened well that's your very very best and other historians very best attempts to put that puzzle together so historians are people are detectives there's the short right, answer right detectives of the past you know if you if you think about some some great movies like uh Oliver Stone's JFK, one of the people in the in that movie says, you know, it's an enigma, it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. So historians are detectives trying to unwrap that mystery within the enigma and figure out what really was. And so it, it, it's, it, it's a journey of questing and snoop, sni sniffing and snooping and overturning stones. And, um, you know, I became a historian because I was in a great books program many years ago at Stanford University, and uh, it was an extraordinary program, and it, it really unveiled for us, the, the 60 of us freshmen who were in that program, the, some of the really pressing, big, you know, big, hairy, fascinating questions that have animated man's search for meaning for 2000 years. That was the, that was the goal of the class to really take a look at some of the most important questions man wow. has man and men and women have confronted in the last 2000 years. And when I finished graduate work at the Kennedy school, a master's in public policy and dabbled in the idea of getting involved in politics, which is something I considered in my early twenties, I realized there were a bunch of really interesting questions that I hadn't fully explored. And so I went I thought, where can I explore those? Well, history is a huge, wide open canvas. You know, it allows you to study all kinds of big, intersecting, overlapping, integrated, multidisciplinary interrogatives. And so I said, it was very naive. I said, if I can get an institution to help pay for this, because I had a lot of student debt already, I'm going to go back to graduate. I'm going to go do graduate work in history. And I loved it from the moment I became a graduate student. I never studied history per se in college. I started, you ah. know, I started 
I, I was a really a newbie. I was very unusual in that, in, in that I was the only graduate student in my program who hadn't been a history major, but I loved it. I was like a kid in a candy shop. And that same love is still very much with me today. It has not abated. It has not gotten jaded. I have not been jilted by my lover history. I am, <laughs> I am joyful in my embrace of the excitement and energy and relevance of the detective stories I get to try and piece together for people today. When you're staring down the idea of becoming a historian, which, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't carry a lot of obvious career nope. paths, you know, how do you reconcile the reality of that profession, the worry, if any, about the stability of that profession versus the, the passion you had for the subject. Oh, it's a huge struggle. It's a huge struggle, particularly for, for doctoral students, right? And for, go, and for the decision to go to graduate school. And it was a struggle when I went into the graduate program at Harvard many, many years ago. This was in the late, in the mid eighties. There, you know, there were very, very few jobs then as now in for PhDs in history. There are a little, a, a small number fewer now, but we're talking from, you know, reductions from a tiny base. So it was a huge worry. My father practically disowned me. He thought it was so impractical to do this when I announced I was going to go to grad, do doctoral work in history. And yet, uh, the answer. So, yes, I think it's a very big concern. It, it's a very it's a great, you know, it 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 poses a kind a kind of existential crisis, I think, for lots of, of historians um, or lots of folks thinking about history and for lots of other folks thinking about other careers in fields that, as you said, Chris, are not it's not immediately obvious. It's not even in some cases you know, obvious at all how you're going to piece together a living by following a great passion. For me, it was as a few other times in my life, not a lot, a few other times in my life, it was what, you know, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard once called a, a leap of faith. Mm. It, it was a leap of faith to do this. I loved it. I knew it felt right for me. It, I, I just had, I just, you know, I, I, I couldn't get right with myself if I turned my back on that and say, went into, you know, economics, which mm. was something my father thought I should do, because then I could get a job going, either go to law school, or I could get a job doing something in business. And that wasn't, that just didn't feel right. And so I tell my students today, and I have many students that aren't at the business school, so my business school students are set up better than ma many sure. to get a job. But my students at the Kennedy School, my students from the college, um, from Harvard College, they're not so well dis well placed in terms of their, you know, money-making power when they get done with school. And I, I say to them, you know, you have to really decide what you're passionate about and how how much you believe in that passion. Because I have learned over the years that people who follow their passion, do their best work, gain a great deal of confidence and get right with themselves earlier. And all those things, Chris, I think help. And this is from years of watching all kinds of young people, right, go up, grow into themselves. All those kinds of things, you know, the passion the, the joy, the confidence, the sense of being right with who you are, all those things actually turn out to be accelerants, right? They turn out to be, you know, you know, gas pedals on your way to doing well practically. Mm. Yeah, it's not, sense. it's not that you can't do well by doing something that's not, that's not joyous. That's not, you know, right for you. All kinds of people do, but what we miss when we say, oh, you're never going to get a job doing something that like that, even though you love it, 
is that loving something immediately ups the odds significantly of your doing well at it. So, so, um, and, and people that love what they do find a way to do it and do it at a high level. And that usually nine times out of 10 gets rewarded practically. Mm. So, so it's a round, more roundabout path, but it's, but it, it, it's a more satisfying path too. I've discovered watching myself, but also watching lots and lots of other people. So again, not for the faint of heart and I'm often faint of heart, but I wasn't in this respect. Huh. But we, you know, we can choose when to screw our courage to the sticking post, yeah. as you know, Shakespeare said, right? Um, and and I, I did in that instance, and it has served me very well. You know, as we were talking about this, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think about the parallels between even this decision, which so many people face, including yourself, including most people listening, of, you know, when to do what they want and taking that tough path, and then the leadership that you talk about in yeah. your book, Forged in Crisis, you know, I mean— albeit to, to different extents, maybe, but it's like everyone faces those moments and can take away from those stories that you tell in this book. Yeah, that's, it's a, that's a great catch. It's a great, it's a great pullout, Chris. Uh, each of these people, I mean, you know, for your listeners that haven't encountered the book, yeah. right, the Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton, whose ship goes down off the coast of Antarctica in 1915, leaving him and his 27 men crew, you know, completely marooned on a floating iceberg with very little more than the leader's will to survive and get his men home safely to, to help them do that. Um, and then the second story, the story of Abraham Lincoln holding himself and the nation together in the perfect storm of the Civil War. The third story, Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave and abolitionist who did as much as Lincoln to transform America and rid the nation of slavery. The fourth story that most of your listeners, at least in my experience, probably haven't encountered, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this this clergyman who became so active in the resistance against Hitler in Germany. And then last, but by no means least, this, the only woman in the book, and in some ways, to me, the most amazing leader, Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, the book that really more than any other single action founded or helped found the modern environmental movement. All of these people face exact to your point face exactly these kinds of crossroads right they find themselves often in a kind of crisis what it's not it, you know it may be an identity crisis as, it, it, as what we're talking about is or it may be a health crisis or it may be you know a life and death crisis like Shackleton they're all they all find themselves unexpectedly suddenly in you know the in a storm with high winds and 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 big big waves and and they all have to dig deep to discover, to act, discover and then access their own muscles of resilience and courage and sense of, of, of what the right path is, what the higher, stronger road is going forward. And, and then to climb or claw or, you know, kind of hike themselves up on that road. And that is really the animating to your, you know, keen insight about the book that is really the anim animating chord or symphony of the book how do people the power of courageous leadership in turbulent times what ha, how do people forge in forge themselves in the midst of crisis into stronger braver mm. right more decent people with the, and more luminous people with the capability of making a great impact that is really the essence of the book and 
we all, to your again, to come back finally to your 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 animating remark, Chris. We all right face these moments in our lives, and they we don't face just one. We face a number of them. Usually, we can't predict when they'll come or how quickly uh, they'll be they'll they'll happen in in succession. Um, but but we all face them, and and we can't avoid them. And the question isn't the existence of ourselves, of finding ourselves in a crisis, the existence of these storms. The question is, what will we do with the moment? Because we can't usually control the fact that we end up in a crisis. Mm -hmm. What we can have agency over is what in the heck will we do and how will we make something good of ourselves in all that difficulty, in all that calamity. Right. Absolutely. And I want to pick out one or two of these and kind of dive a little deeper. But before you do that, I, I had a question that, that popped into my brain earlier. And I said, oh, my gosh, I have to ask Nancy this because I've always wondered, how right can we be? And at what point do we start losing that accuracy? How spot on can we be about the nuances Right, which you're kind of uncovering the emotions, the relationships, the the struggles, things like that. How right can historians get it to help us relive those moments? And also, how far back does it start becoming difficult? The answer is you can get very, very good because if you have very, very good evidence, the puzzle pieces, the breadcrumbs, the residue are there. So, one of the reasons these people, these five people, you know, of I've been at the Harvard Business School for more than for 26 years. I've been studying leaders since I got there. And so I've been exposed to all kinds of leaders, past and present. And, you know, one of the reasons these five ended up in the book is because they, these people and their moment had left that evidence. So I knew I wanted to do something around the emotional, the inner life of leaders in crisis. So I had to pick people that had left that had left or for whom there there was this kind of evidence. So if the evidence is there, the time period itself doesn't matter. So, for example, you know, you, we, we can uncover a, a great, great deal about, about Ernest Shackleton's inner life because he left a diary and all of his men kept diaries and notes. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot. And they're, and they're not they're not little diaries that say two, you know, you know, 12 6 1915 you know tried to tried to crack open the ice on the iceberg their diaries that are about his frustrations his sense of his men you know his own turmoil right put footstep of patience into stirrup of courage right um these are these are we have that if you have the if the evidence exists the time period matters much much less the critical thing is, are the breadcrumbs there? So that's, and, and, and how hard is it to do? It's as hard as any, as uncovering or piecing together any mystery. The more complicated the story, the harder it is to do. But it, that all depends a great deal on the diligence and ingenuity and, if you will, kind of sheer sweat equity of the historian. Mm. You know, think about the best detective stories you've read. Think about Sherlock Holmes or, you know, some of the great detectives of of our of, of our literary lives. These were people who never gave up. Columbo. Remember the Columbo? <laughs> some of your, your listeners will. Right. He, Peter Fox character never gave up. 
trying to figure out who did it and why and how. And so this book took 15 years for me to write. Now, part of that time I was recovering from my own series of unexpected crises and trying to forge myself first into survival and then into something better. And so that took up a lot of time, but a great deal of the last half of that time period was spent not dashing off, you know, blog posts. It Mm -hmm. was spent sitting in my study surrounded by books and diaries and, and digital, you know, correspondence as I tried to figure out what was going on here. So it just takes a great deal of time, but it is eminently doable given a rich historical record. And that's a big, big bar. It's a high bar because mm. lots and lots of interesting folks don't leave interesting records. And sometimes the worse their emotional situation, the more off, the, the more likely they are to have covered it up or burned those diaries, right. burned those papers. So the big if is about the is about the breadcrumbs and the second big if is how how serious and how committed is the historian and how much time do they have or are they willing to expend to try and piece it together this week's episode is brought to you by casper mattresses casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how did they do that sized box with free shipping and returns in the US and Canada. But the best part is, You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Here's what we're offering to listeners of Smart People Podcast. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash smart and using smart at checkout. That's casper.com slash smart and offer code SMART for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. As I mentioned, I do want to go into these. There's just so many questions I have for you. And I hate to ask the obvious, but for those that haven't heard it before, let me just ask, what have you found in your research in studying these five people to be the unifying themes of strong leadership in the middle of crisis? No, it's good. It's an important question and really important, and it cannot be asked enough. So three things, really, three fun, fundamental aspects of how do we, how does a leader do the work that he or she must in order to first navigate, you're doing two things in a crisis. You're navigating through the, the waters, you know, the, the dangerous waters, and, and then you're also steering toward a better place, right? It's not just survive, it's survive and then thrive, or it's not just, right, save the country, save the company, save the environment. It's also how do you transform that organization or that entity into something that can, that can be better, stronger, much more capable of accomplishing its mission. So you're doing both things. So three themes to navigating and then, heading toward the North Star of, or as I like to say, 
pushing the boulder of goodness forward. Because each of these stories, Chris, as you know, is not about people who just accomplished a mission uh, through, you know, and, and, and made themselves capable of doing something extraordinary. These are ordinary people who make themselves in crisis capable of doing something extraordinary. The, the, and they, these are also people who do it toward a worthy, right, benevolent, universally good outcome, mission. So, you know, lots of people say, well, why don't you write about Genghis Khan to me because he was a successful leader? I'm not. We have plenty of stories of base leaders who are playing to all of our weaker selves. We don't. The world does not need more of those stories. Right. The world needs stories of people who found their morals, their muscles of moral courage in order to do something good. So so these are five people who who did that. And here are the, the three, if you will, I think, unifying themes. They apply to people in all walks of life trying to move the boulder of goodness forward from librarians to chemo nurses to school principals to policemen and women. First, right, you, you, you need to stumble into, see from you know, a shining divine light, uh, discover early on, right? Grab out of the, the ether. You need to find a worthy purpose, right? So each of these people had a worthy purpose. They could never have forged themselves into such strong leaders, courageous leaders without the purpose. So the purpose itself is important and and it, and it helps sustain them by the way, in some of their darkest hours when they want to give it all up and tumble over the edge of the cliff into doubt and despair and and giving up second the leader the person the mother the the principal the the congressman the activist the podcast right host makes a decision in the midst of all this difficulty and confusion to within themselves to to make something good of the moment that's a pact. It's a covenant. It can be indirect. It can be direct, but it has to be made. It, and it is in all these instances and over and over again in these people, in these stories, you make a pact somehow. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to get bitter. I'm not going to get smaller. And by hook or crook, even if I don't know how, I'm going to, I'm going to make something good of this and of myself. So the second piece is a covenant or a pact or a meeting with oneself. Mm. And the third piece is, is that out of the darkness, the dark night of the soul, right, that is a crisis that, that you know, in all way, in me, for all of us at some moment, we sit in the dark, we wander around the, in the wilderness or in the dark night of the soul. In the midst of that, we, we find a way to, to harness our emotional awareness. So our big tool for embracing the mission, right, for finding our worthy purpose and then moving it forward for making ourselves better and not smaller and a victim and bitter in the midst of a crisis. The key tool here is the third theme, and that is a huge amount depends on our emotional awareness. We don't teach this in most leadership academies. We don't do enough of it with Harvard Business School. We don't hear leaders talking about it. But man, oh man, we sure know when we encounter a leader who's operating from his or her foundation of emotional awareness. And then leading, that means, from the inside out. So think about someone like Martin Luther King, you know, whose light and, pow and inner power was were some of his most important tools, right? Think about someone like Nelson Mandela. Think about someone like Robert Kennedy. Think about someone like Abraham Lincoln. Think about someone 
like, you know, Marion Wright Edelman, who runs the Children's Defense League. These are all people. Think about someone like Melinda Gates, who really runs the Gates Foundation. These are people who are operating not from a command of policy and, and practicable answers. They have that. But what their real power, their real ability to motivate and inspire others to join them and thus really make a difference in the world. What their real power is, is their own sense of emotional awareness and how to use that to connect with the mission and connect with other people to help them execute on the mission. So mission, covenant with oneself to get bigger and more luminous and stronger, not smaller and bitter and more of a, and then a victim. And third, my greatest tool for, do, for, for in those other two aspects is my own sense of emotional awareness and emotional discipline I can use with myself and connect with others to, to really try and advance that mission or that purpose. Sometimes we can hear what these five individuals have done, or even the people you mentioned, and say, look, I don't have that strong a why, I'm never going to do this big thing, or even if I'm not going to, I don't plan to, that's not my goal, right? What do you say to the people that feel almost like they can't relate given the size or scope of the aspirations of these leaders that you highlight? It's a great question. So this book is not about how do I become Abraham Lincoln or how do I become Rachel Carson, right, who's battling metastasizing cancer while she's trying to finish this, what she knows is a really important book. You know, how do I become Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's involved as a spy in the Nazi government trying to assassinate Hitler and overthrow the Third Reich? That's not the message of the book. It's not about how do I become these people. The the animating theme of the book, and I know because I have none of the none of the chapters went into the book without being test marketed, if you will, over and over again with all kinds of students and executives and you know healthcare leaders. So lot this book has been been read and experienced in many forms by many, thousands of people over the last 10 years. And I've, I've seen all kinds of leaders and leaders that aren't yet formed relate to it. So the, the big theme of the book at an at a, at a infrastructure level is leaders come in all shapes and sizes. You know, at one point in one of these stories, I talk about how mothers, right, trying to steer a troubled child through a difficult period are some of our most important leaders or firefighters or leaders or nurses or leaders. I've had cancer a couple of times. And let me tell you, some of the most, the strongest, most courageous people I have ever encountered as leaders were the nurses who helped me through some of the hardest physical experiences I've ever been through in the treatment of cancer. So, so this, this book is, is for all of us and the lessons and the insights that each of these people learn can be applied as as, as much to how do I make work up the courage to ask my boss for a promotion to how do I try and, you know, feed hungry men and women in the Middle East to how do I work for, you know, water rights in sub-Saharan Africa to how do I lead my sales force with more integrity and engagement and sense of a good higher road purpose. This is not a book about how to be someone in marble. It's about a book to be about. A, it's a book about how to be your best self, who you're meant to be. That's what this book is. Yeah. How, who, who are you meant to be? This book is written for every person who wants to explore that question. Yeah. And you know, I'm going to 
bring this into something that I talk about, I utilize in my work, and, and many of the listeners know this, but so I uh, teach workshops for a company called Franklin Covey, and, and Dr. Oh. Covey wrote Seven oh. Habits. Yeah. And, and one of the things that he taught me was this idea of the character ethic versus the personality ethic. And through his work, he basically looked back about 200 years on as much literature as he could find about leadership and found that starting in about 1800 all the way up to 1950, so about 150 years, what he found leadership was defined as, or a lot of the strong leaders focused on who they were, their foundation, their character, what made them an individual. Only in the last 50 years, so 1950 to 2000 about, he saw a big shift towards leaders focusing on how they appeared, right? Who liked them, kind of what their actions were on the surface, what to do, the tips, tricks, as opposed to who they were. I found that exactly to be what you noticed in these people. I mean, especially Shackleton, Lincoln, even Douglas, right? The focus on themselves as an individual, how they take care of themselves, yep. how they present themselves with, with honesty and integrity and motivation and was where they focused, not what can I say to well, manipulate the situation? Was that so, obviously apparent to you? Uh, so th yes, it is. It's, I, I, I've not heard Mr. Covey's distinction. I think it's apt um, before you mentioned it. So mm -hmm. two an appetizer to the answer. So many years ago, David Foster Wallace, the American. I love that guy. Yeah. Novelist, had this definition of leadership to offer in an article he wrote in the, in the Rolling Stone. And I, I've used it. I used it in the introduction of the book and it has animated my thinking for well over a decade about the definition of leadership. Real leaders, David Foster Wallace writes, are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weakness, weaknesses, selfishness, laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own, right? Leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weakness, weaknesses, selfishness, laziness, and fears, and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. Now, I think that captures a whole lot about courageous, real leaders. We're longing for more of those people today in our in our elected politics at the national level, no matter which party you're from, we're longing for that. Um, and and I think that that these people became those leaders, these five people. I think I've studied many, many other leaders who became real, courageous leaders of the same definition of the same ilk, and they did it from the inside out. Right. So what Covey is saying is leadership used to, to begin with the inside of the leader mm. and then inside out who you are. What see, see, real leadership is ultimately about two things. It's about character and it's about competence. Yeah. Right? Character and competence are related. So how can we talk about leadership? If we're not talking about, you know, the, the guts and the heartbeat and the integrity and the formation of people from the inside out. So this book proceeds from the inside out in terms of its these stories of leaders. Um, having said that, and, and, and yet having said that, each of these people, like everyone that's listening to this podcast, knows that you can't live solely from the inside out. You have to understand the larger stage. You have to understand the, 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 fa the simple fact that as a leader, whether you're a mother or a father or a doctor or a 
you know, a, a traffic warden, people's eyes are on you. So you have to show up, mm-hmm. right, with a sense of that responsibility, you know, with your stronger, better side. You got to show up, even if you don't always feel like showing up as, you know, stronger, a stronger, better version of yourself. And you got to move to move people's hearts and minds. You have to interact on this large external stage. So all of these people understand that fully well. And some of the most interesting lessons in the book that these people learn are about how they learn to do that. That being said, the basis, the foundation, the mother load, right, the, 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 the absolute center of each of these stories and each of these people remains their character and their competence and how they affect those two elements, those essential, that essential pair of elements as they walk through their journey trying to make themselves better. So they're working on themselves. So Mr. Covey would say great leaders are always working on themselves. Oh, yeah. These, like anyone that's going to live a satisfying life, you're going to decide somewhere along the line, and it's going to be a decision for the rest of your life that you're going to keep working on making yourself better. Mm -hmm. And these people do. And how they do that is part of, I think, one of the most interesting and digestible nuggets, series of nuggets in the book is a very important part of the book. You do such a great job of humanizing these folks, but also showing the side of them that is superhuman. And what I mean is, I think we need to highlight the fact that, you know, these leaders got depressed, they cried, they struggled, they probably had even more going on internally and physical ills, which come from this. I just think it's really critical to recognize that they weren't superhuman going into it. It's only the willingness to come out the other side, which is why you, I mean, the title forged in crisis. I have learned partly because this is what has made me so interested and engaged, compelled by history. I have learned that the more human, the person in, in, in a particular moment in the past, the more interesting they are. So these stories are ultimately about the very humanity of each of these individuals, everything from, you know, what kind of food Lincoln liked to eat, to the fact that he told, you know, raunchy stories late at night when he couldn't sleep to, <laughs> you know, Rachel Carson being absolutely gaga about her cats. Right. These are very, these stories are about the whole person, warts and all, including their fears. I mean, you mentioned these are people who want to give up. They get they get you know, they get they're full of doubt at moments. They grow deeply depressed. Each of them. They, you know, they wander around at moments in confusion and uncertainty. They also scared a lot, each of them. And in that sense, all of the, all of these aspects of the stories are, 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 are much more similar to you and I and to the rest of your listeners than they are, than they are different. So, so these are people who are acting from living in, leading from their humanity. None of them, I think would, would ever think of themselves as superhuman. And and I don't think of them as superhuman. I think of them as demonstrative of, you know, good evidence for what we are capable of, what we are each capable of when we make decisions and commit to them. Because a big part of these stories, these people in the moments of doubt, in the moments of fear, in the moments of depression, don't give up, right? When we commit, to leading from our stronger side as best we can, because we can't do it all the time, right? When we do that, we are capable of amazing 
amazing things. You know, I just finished this biography of Robert Kennedy and Teddy Kennedy at, at his brother's funeral in June of 1968 says, you know, my brother liked this quote. Some people dream dreams uh, and, and ask why not. My brother always asked why not. These people, these people, you know, keep saying why not? Not mm. not how do I move a mountain? Not how do I part the clouds or the seas? But rather, why not? Why can't I try to do this? And so, and by the way, the doing of it, the the, the constant work to make oneself better is messy difficult, right? Ta exhausting work that all of us can relate to as the stuff of some of the most challenging and important moments in our life. So it's messy. This book is about the mess of the messiness of becoming who we're meant to be. Mm. But it's not about a story about superhumans. The story of these people, and the reason we remember the stories is because ultimately they, the stories are about how they did it by hook or crook and often two steps forward one big step back. So, so I think, I hope readers come away as I know many of them have. I've had teenagers read this book and say, gosh, if Ernest Shackleton can do this, I can do this. Right. Right. That's what I want. If, if, if Rachel Carson could do this while she's, you know, incapacitated physically yeah. by cancer, then I can certainly do this on, for my mission with my capabilities. I, that's what I hope people will make their own as they read the stories. It's not about leaping tall buildings in a single bound or a red cape. Yeah. And you know, Nancy, I know we need to let you go, but I just had my own little epiphany. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw it out there, but I really, if you don't agree, just based on everything you've learned, pick it apart a little bit. As a society, with all of the technology, with all of the instant gratification and also constant coverage... I think we're actually propagating the outside in leadership. Absolutely. I think we're, we're actually, we are actually forcing leaders to be less effective because, because of the fact they're always visible. Every part of their lives is picked apart and instantaneously spread to everyone that when they show those cracks, when they have a human moment, when they go play with their cats and look like a crazy cat person, or they cry or they, they go into depression we instantly write them off as a leader and they're they're done. So what that's telling others is you cannot be human. You can't show this side. You can't actually be who you are. And therefore, we spend all of our efforts on how we appear, much less on doing the hard work inside, and we yeah. never get to build the proper way. I, I, agree, I agree with you. Two uh, postscripts to what you just said. I agree with you. Um, and one of the lessons of the book, and I or actually I say this in different forms in a couple of places as lessons is how important it is to have time for reflection, how important it is to put your phone away, how important it is to stop thinking that the answers to the pressing problems of our country, our global village, our own lives are not scrolling our phones. The answers aren't there. It's not that our phones aren't useful in certain ways, but we're assuming there's that the answers are there as well as our own you know, ability to make ourselves emotionally aware, disciplined, forbearing, decent, luminous. They're not there at all. We're looking up the, we're barking up the wrong tree. So, so I think that, that first postscript, right? Reflection, time alone, plenty of time spent in the wilderness, right? In the, in the, in the small boat navigating the highways is actually really important. Um, second, 
it's not just our public leaders that I think are being made less effective. I think each of us is because we're all meant to lead in some way that's relevant and, and compelling for ourselves. We're all meant to play a leadership role. But but if we we're only thinking about, you know, from the outside in, we're not going to discover that mission. We're not going to discover that path or that role. So I think it's diminishing our all of our capacities to lead. And then the last thing I would say is when we encounter a leader that 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 does allow him or herself to be vulnerable. I don't know if you had a chance to read Salma Hayek. I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Hayek's a piece in the New York Times I yesterday didn't. where she's talking about her own experience in Hollywood. She's talking about Harvey Weinstein, but she's really talking about feeling incredibly vulnerable and self-hating hmm. in the moment of not being a feeling like she's not worth very much and she doesn't have any power. And I, it is the most, it, it's been very high on the most read stories. I have no doubt that millions of people will read this and think a little bit differently about themselves and about her um, and what and what she's doing. And, and the point is that there's a person who's very thoughtfully, right, very, very carefully with great time and reflection decided to expose her vulnerabilities. It's not a piece primarily pointing the finger at Harvey Weinstein. It's a piece about what she experienced. And it's done carefully and courageously and with an eye to how do we raise the bar for each of ourselves and and especially for decorum and how we treat each other in, in our society. So there's a place for leaders to lead literally from their own vulnerability in a thoughtful, careful, reflective way toward a higher purpose. Mm. And and that's that may be some of the silver lining of all this exposure and social media and living in glass houses. But again, it can't be primarily reactive. It's not an angry tweet. Right. Right. It can't be that. That does damage. Mm -hmm. We have to have something that uplifts that, you know, makes us better. Let's helps us do better, harder things than we can do on our own. I, I couldn't agree more. I think the book is so relevant and just so necessary for a million reasons. One for me, it just reignited kind of a passion for a subject that I would say I was least passionate about in when I think about college, but it does it in the way that we, I, I like learning through stories, but through really uh, intricate detail, really appreciate it. Forged in crisis, the power of courageous leadership in turbulent times is the book. Nancy, where else are you, you know, what's on the horizon or, or, or are you writing elsewhere? You know, where can our listeners go to, to really dig in? A couple of places to dig in. So on Amazon, at the bottom of the web page for the book, right, you get on the Amazon, you search for the title. At the very bottom are five short videos for everyone trying to be a better leader in whatever walk of life they're in. So that I put together like a little leadership course. You can see it at the bottom of the page on Amazon. Whether you buy the book or not, It's inter I hope it'll be interesting. These are short, like three or four minute videos. The book has its own website that has a whole bunch more videos and tips and, you know, leadership lessons. That's forgedincrisis.com. And then last but not least, my personal website, which is actually a house. It's a house and you navigate through the rooms, discover interesting things for yourself, interesting lessons, readings, videos, um, tidbits is nancycane.com. So any of those places will take you, whether you buy the book or not, to some of the diamonds in the rough 
in terms of helping you be better and stronger and more who you, you're meant to be in a quick and accessible way. Nancy, thank you so, so much for your time. This was a fantastic conversation. Can't wait to get this out to our listeners. Best of luck. Terrific. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate you doing this for me. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. All righty. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nancy Kane. Nancy's book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you're going to purchase the book through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Using our link comes to no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, listen up. We really, really want to hear from those that love the show. So if you love Smart People Podcast, send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We want to get in touch with you. We want to ask you why you listen to the show and just pick your brain a little bit. So again, if you love the show, reach out to us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. That's it for us this week. Remember, you can head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to check out all the old episodes and sign up for the newsletter. We've got some great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned, and we will see you all next episode.